0: One quote which I feel I've been living by, um, it's uh, TJ Watson's. I said, do you want a recipe for success? It's quite simple, really, double your rate of failure. In uh, college, my AI class didn't go quite well. (laughs) I think it's the one class that I nearly failed. Now I can say it, but I wasn't the model student. I would never go to courses. I would never attend lectures. I think we all felt it was the only way out because we were so oppressed materialistically. If you got an education, then that could make a difference. And so that was really highly valued even during communist Romania. So I grew up under a lot of hardship And again, I don't say it for others to pity me, because I don't pity myself. It's just a fact. Um, And I always saw the positives of it. And I actually value a lot pen and paper computer science. I think it removes a lot of frustrations. You learn the concepts, fundamentals.
1: Welcome to the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast, where we talk to computer scientists who immigrated from their home countries for study or for work or for other reasons. In these oral history interviews, you will find established and renowned computer scientists from across academia and industry narrating their experiences of immigrating from where they grew up to a completely different land, often the US. My name is Indy Gupta, and I'm your host. This is episode 33, an interview with Rada Mihalca, professor of computer science and engineering at the University of Michigan and director of the Michigan AI Lab. We talk about Rada growing up poor in communist Romania of the 1970s and 80s and life after the Romanian Revolution in 1989, how Rada's family members were blacklisted by the communist government, of the administrative mistake that led to Rada even. Applying to grad schools in the US, of Rada doing a second PhD, handling imposter syndrome, and Rada's continuing efforts for her homeland, Romania. You may also enjoy the lead episode of this segment on Romania, that's episode 31, that features two prominent computer scientists originally from Romania and who have been in the US since the 1990s. As usual, you can find all episodes and detailed episode guides on our website csimmigrant.org Again, that's csimmigrant.org And you can find us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts and basically wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is structured into acts or chapters. You'll find chapter markers on your audio player and you can use these to jump between the acts or chapters. I'm delighted to welcome Radha Mihalcha, to the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast. Radha Mihalcha is a professor of computer science and engineering at the University of Michigan, where she has been since 2013. She also directs the Michigan AI Lab. Radha holds a named professor position at the University of Michigan, the Janice M. Jenkins Collegiate Professor. This is also significant because Janice Jenkins was the first woman faculty in electrical engineering and computer science at the University of Michigan. Radha Mihalcha's research interests are in the Natural Language Processing Area, NLP, as well as Human-Computer Interaction, or HCI, Computational Social Sciences, and Artificial Intelligence. Radha is widely recognized as one of the leaders in the AI and NLP fields. Since 2019, she has served as the Vice President, President, and now Past President of the Association for Computational Linguistics. Among her many awards are becoming a fellow of the Association for the Advancement of Artificial Intelligence, or AAAI. She's also an ACM fellow, and Radha won the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers, which we sometimes call as PICACE. Radha has significant outreach efforts, and she's a significant uh, promoter of diversity in computer science. Among her projects are Leading Girls Encoded, which recruits and retains women into computer science, she also directs Explore CS Research at Michigan, which exposes women and underrepresented minority undergrads to research experiences. And Radha co-leads Renew CS, a five-year project funded by Northeastern, which is aimed at bringing diversity into computer science. Radha has won many awards at the University of Michigan, including the Carol Head Inspire Award for Promoting Equity and Social Change. The Sarah Power Goddard Award for Significant Contribution to the Betterment of Women in Leadership, Scholarship, and Professional Careers. Radha has also won many awards from Romania, which is the country that she grew up in, including the Innovation and Technology Award from the Aspen Institute in Romania, 2014. She's also an honorary citizen of Cluj napoca in Romania in 2013. And she won the Romanian Academy Award for Science and Technology, In 2010, and that's an award given out to only two every year. Here's Radha's timeline before she became a professor at University of Michigan. Radha was born and grew up in Romania in the 1970s, 80s, and uh, most of the 90s. She did her bachelor's in computer science and engineering at the Technical University of Cluj-Napoca in Romania in 1997. Then in 1997, she immigrated to the U.S. for her master's, uh, which she completed uh, her master's, computer science and engineering at the Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. That was in 99. And then in 2001, she finished her PhD from the same place, from Southern Methodist University. 2002, uh, she spent a little while at the University of Texas at Dallas as a visiting assistant professor. And then soon after that, she became an assistant professor at the University of North Texas, that was in 2002. In 2008, she became an associate professor at the University of North Texas, And then in 2013, she joined the University of Michigan. Along the way, while she was an associate professor in 2010, Radha got a second PhD uh, in linguistics from Oxford University. We'll talk about that as we go along. And at University of Michigan, Radha became a full professor in 2015, and she's been at University of Michigan since then. Welcome, Radha, to the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast, and thank you for being willing to share your journey and your experiences with us. We are delighted to have you join us.
0: Well, thank you, Indy. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I think it's really important to highlight stories and highlight the fact that different people have different backgrounds um, and different beliefs and really different value systems. And we all contribute in different ways to what we are building wherever we settle, in this case, United States.
1: So starting with your earliest memories, you grew up in Romania in the 1970s, 80s and 90s. Uh, Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and your earliest childhood memories.
0: So I I grew up in Cluj-Napoca, which you mentioned um, a couple of times. It's really integral part of who I am, my Romanian identity, and also I'm very fond of my hometown. It's my favorite place in the world. Um, It also happens to be the capital of Transylvania. I know some people care about those stories. Um, So I am from Transylvania. And um, I grew up during what was pretty dark communism. Um, So that was up to 1989. Um, I was in ninth grade um, when eventually that revolution happened and things started to change. So some of my earliest childhood memories are from those times when getting food was a challenge. There were hours and hours at end with no electricity because apparently the Romania wanted to save energy, and so the way of saving was just not to give it to the population. There were no books. There was all the restrictions. There were. You were not allowed to go out of the country. Nobody was allowed to go in the country. So that was up to when I was 15. That was sort of the environment. My family, however, was a very happy family. So all in all, I, I have a very happy childhood, and I credit my parents for doing that. They sort of created a bubble for us. Um, Even if there was no food on the table, there was a way of putting it in a way that we didn't necessarily feel it was missing. I mean, potatoes were still fine and whatever we we had left. And I guess in a way, maybe there were some benefits to it um, in the sense of creating a value system Like education, for instance, was really valued in a way we never spelled it out, but I think we all felt it was the only way out because we were Mm. so oppressed materialistically. If you got an education, then that could make a difference. And so that was really highly valued even during communist Romania. Mm. I really wanted to travel, which was at odds with the time we were in. I was thinking that I would go and do the tour of the world and see all these places. Of course, we were not allowed to have a passport. So it wasn't something that you could do it, but that didn't stop me from dreaming and wanting it. I do eventually leave that every single day, maybe a little bit less now during the pandemic. But I really traveled yeah. and saw a lot of the world, which was that early wish that I that I had.
1: Even in cluj napoca which is one of the largest cities, the fourth largest city right now in Romania, there was in the 1980s, there was of course rationing, but you're also saying there were power cuts. So you couldn't even study at home. Uh, how, how, was, how was that like?
0: We would study at home at candlelight. Um, so there was the candle for the light and then the oven turned on, which I realized in retrospect was quite dangerous for the weren't because there was no heat. I, re- I remember also we, are, we had the round table, which is a <laughs> tiny detail, but we were all doing. So it's five of us, my parents and my mm-hmm. sister and brother and myself and we were doing homework. And my way of handwriting is really shaking things around. And I was always annoying my siblings because I was (laughs) moving them as I was doing my homework. And that was, I mean, that was really the way of living. We would come home from school around 5 p.m., which during winter time, it really was dark already. So we would have the candle that would put, and my dad was just put something together with a little, With a little light, that, but there was no electricity. So it's primarily candle. It, it was just fine. I think we as children didn't necessarily feel we were missing something. I mean, for that matter, everyone around us was the same. Uh. Again, in retrospect, I think it's not the same for poor people in US, for instance. I mean, they see riches around them. So it's hard to be poor and not have things when others around you have it for us, nobody had anything. I mean, everybody was under those electricity cuts. The rations that you mentioned, we were only allowed to have 10 eggs per month, half of <laughs> bread loaf <laughs> per day, So, which I don't know how were calculated, but we had those rations.
1: Was the food from the rations, was that enough for, for you, for the family?
0: I think it was enough to the extent there was, <laughs> but there wasn't often. So again, I mentioned 10X. I remember that we had these yeah. pieces, um, like cards that they would go and punch. If you get your X for the month, you would get a little hole, which said that you had it and then you have to come back next month. But they were not always available. There were these super long lines. And I was again thinking recently, how that spread without, I mean, there are no phones, no mobiles, but... It was through the neighbors, like, oh, there are eggs at that store over there. And everybody would run and (laughs) form a line to get those eggs. Uh, The same was for milk, for bread. So pretty much everything had a a long line associated with it. And then, of course, meat and cheese were the premium. I mean, if you get some, that was like a big deal celebration in the family.
1: I see. So even meat was premium. Oh, yes.
0: Meat particularly. Uh, Meat and cheese, I think there was specials. And then... Other things, I don't know, like I remember when I sit, I stayed in line myself for hours because there were oranges. That was, oh my gosh, it was super special. <laughs> we wouldn't get oranges. Um, I think there was emphasis on export, my recollection, vague, that a lot of what Romania produced was exported. And so um, not enough ended up for the actual Romanians. Yeah.
1: Were either of your parents engineers?
0: Yes. My dad is an engineer and then my mom was also trained in an engineering mindset and they were both working in an engineering factory for refrigeration. My mom doing engineering designs and my dad also working in the engineering space.
1: Both your parents were working while you were away at school with your siblings?
0: Yes. And that's, again, something that now conflicts with my own children. I don't feel super comfortable letting them just go to school. Like if there's even at the bus at the end of the street, I would take them. But so that's why I feel a little bit conflicted how we are going. And we were going to school. I was first grade, second grade. We were just walking to school. My mom did for a while. She did uh, part time uh, specifically because she wanted to be with us. So she would work for half day and then come home. Um, there was still a part of the day that we would be on our own.
1: How was the money system? Like, did your parents earn money that then you used at rations or was it more like a moneyless system? How was that?
0: Yeah, so it was in a way pretty much like now, like you'd get the salary at the end of the month. We didn't really get ends to meet that way because there was never enough, like how much my parents were were earning, I still remember they were getting actual physical money in an envelope, which doesn't really happen these days, right? Mm -hmm. And then it was just how much it will be left until the end of the month when the next round of envelopes with some money in it would come. I also have recollection, which, all I mean, they might sound terrible now and maybe they were, but for us, they were like fun times. There were times when... We just didn't have any money left and there was nothing on the table and we wanted to get a bread. And that was the run with all five of us going around the house and trying to find something like a five cent, which is the <laughs> Romanian bun, <laughs> or a 25 one. So we'll get the four lei and 25 bun, which would be the, the Romanian money to get a bread. And we'll look in maybe winter clothes, pockets, or wherever we would think there could be some drawers and we'll put all those together until... And that usually lasted for an hour or so, like (laughs) going around the house and looking for those little coins. It wasn't very often, but it did happen uh, when we just not have anything, anything left.
1: It was like a treasure hunt for treasure money, hunt, but yes. this, this time, this time the, the stakes are essentially food and survival.
0: But again, I mean, I, I really admire my parents. I know they really carry a lot of heavy lift, having three kids at home and being responsible for their upbringing during those times. They managed to shelter us really well. Like even those things, okay, there is no money, there is no food, we need to do something. It was really, like you said, the treasure hunt around the house. So it wasn't... <laughs> feeling so terrible for us as as kids.
1: And there was no notion of like saving up money or having a bank account.
0: You didn't really have anything to save. So there was no notion of saving because what to save if you didn't. There was one thing which was interesting. Um, It was something that was organized among my parents' colleagues where they would put some money and they agreed among themselves. Like every, say for every salary round, they would give a hundred to someone And that was one way for you to get at some point a larger amount. Like every month, say you give a hundred to this colleague, they had the lineup. Um, And then when your turn comes that everybody gives you that 100, you end up with a larger amount and then you can do something significant. I don't know if you want to buy furniture. So it was like a bank, but it was really organized among people.
1: That was a collective bank. Yeah,
0: Yeah, it was one way of, it wasn't really saving, but getting like a larger amount all in one, if you wanted to get something more significant.
1: And then, towards the late 80s and approaching the revolution of 1989, did you see things start to change in the economy and in the ration lines and everything else?
0: Well, start to change for the worse. I mean, they got worse and worse. Um, like, I have some of the very early memories, there were still this. I don't know, a juice that I like, which was still available at a certain store, but that stopped being available. So up to 89, things just got worse and worse in terms of what was available or not for that matter, how many hours of energy cuts we had every day. And in the early days, I remember there were still some books um, late. There was none. I mean, there were books, but there were all like Russian books or books about the dictator or things that you wouldn't bother to read. So there were things on the shelves in bookstores, but no books by foreigners. And so I noticed changes for the, for the worse.
1: In the worst times, uh, how many, typically, how many hours of power did you get during the day?
0: So I actually don't know during the day. Uh, what I remember were the things that we didn't get when we actually needed um, in the mm. evening. So there are about four hours per day when there was like the saving. And those in winter times are were among typically from 5 p.m. to 9 p.m., 10 p.m. So so by the time you you had to go to bed, <laughs> it would come back. There was yell around the neighborhood that is back, it's back. <laughs> so people would turn it on. But then it was time for people to go to bed. And so then during the day, we would be out, whether my parents at work, we at school. So we didn't necessarily need the light or the yeah the were yes but like the heating
1: now the romanian government especially under nicola uh, Ceausescu, had a lot of policies that had human rights aspects to it you have described some of them were there other things that affected your family or you know your your neighbors government policies
0: well there there were and again my family sheltered us from them but um for one thing I mentioned, there was no passport. My mom's side is from Italy. And so that was a, really a black point for us that we had relatives in a different country. Um, and for that matter, we are not allowed to have passports. My mom once there to ask to have a passport to go and see her cousins and aunts. Um, and I still remember the dark blue paper that we got with just one line, you cannot have a passport. Um, and then otherwise my grandfather, he was considered an intellectual, which was really bad <laughs> during communism. Um, so even prior to the communism, he went and got um, schooling in Bologna in Italy in chemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, he was from a somehow wealthier family. They started the first newspaper in Transylvania and, um, mm-hmm. and that when communism started was, um, was really terrible. Um, and they suffer okay. much more than we did as like my immediate family. I know my grandfather was sent in prison multiple times for being mm-hmm. an intellectual um, in some of the worst prisons along with others which were labeled the same. I know some of my aunts were not allowed in school because of my grandfather being oh. this intellectual so yeah the, Family had to suffer quite a bit, I would say, much more than we had when, okay, energy was out, there was no food, but there was still like day to day as opposed to being sent in prison. Along with my grandmother who was from Italy, she could not see her mother or family for that matter because they were not allowed. Neither way. She could not go out to Italy to see them. They were not allowed in the country. And that's just one example. Um, I know other families have been affected a, a lot as well.
1: That must have had a an effect on your mother as she was growing up, you know, has, as her father is is in and out of jail, and is they're not about able to study.
0: The were, the Second World War, that affected my um, my grandmother. My mom was still very little then. Um, and then, as I mentioned, there were these other implications that they were receiving different treatment because of the connection to Italy. Which, I mean, what you could do, you cannot really. Remove it somehow. So that was there, and there were these folders that the security kept on all families. And I heard post revolution that our family had um, such a folder there, which was all this—the upbringing from a healthy family for my my grandfather, the uh, my grandmother being from Italy—and so there were implications in terms of what they could do, what they were allowed to study or not. Yes, they did affect my mother and her siblings quite a bit.
1: The revolution of 1989, as it's happening, what is what is your experience and what is your family's experience during the revolution?
0: I mean, I, I recall that I was actually out. Um, it was winter, and I went for my first skiing lesson. It didn't work out. I didn't learn much, but it was more parenthetically. I know my, uh, my father and my sister, they went out in the city when they were like, the army shooting, and and then we were all stuck to the radio and TV sets to, to hear what's happening. So those changes were, everybody wanted them. But again, in retrospect, thinking about communism, I think that was, um I would say it's smart, it's a terrible way of controlling a society. So there were like 20 million Romanians and a handful of people at the leadership, and still they managed to control them for a long time. And that's because of the lack of trust. Like we wouldn't trust our neighbors to talk about Ceausescu or about, I don't know, our Italian connections or other things just because you wouldn't know. I mean, are they really trustworthy people or are they going to tell the police and then next day who knows what happens? And so it was really a very broken social network. And that's what I think delayed things a lot. And when eventually things happened, there was a lot of, pressure it was like a pressure cooker (laughs) like everybody was ready it was just like the worst life you could imagine but nobody would trust the neighborhood to actually start the movement earlier so when eventually it happened that just exploded now of course it took a while i mean romania is still undergoing changes it just takes a while to change for once to change the economy but i think changing the people it's taking even longer right even now I realize I have it's not that I don't trust people I do, but I'm not the most outspoken like there are certain things that I always have like I mean, should I say should I not,' which is from my I'm bringing. I was always told don't don't tell anyone about this or about that. We are listening to the radio about things that we are not supposed to, and my family always told us don't just don't tell anyone because it's, it's right. nobody's supposed to know, so even now I have some of that, and I I can see how millions of other Romanians have have some of it too. So changing it, it really takes a generation plus to change, so it's still undergoing changes. (laughs)
1: You're listening to the interview with Radami Halcha, professor at the University of Michigan. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast. Let's talk a little bit about your schooling. So when did you first get interested in science and math? Was there a particular event that uh, picked your interest or was it did just grow organically over time?
0: Well, I mentioned previously that one thing that was going well even during communism was education. I think there was interest on all sides on teacher side to educate the children, on student side to learn, because again, without spelling it out, we're seeing it as sort of the only way to escape what was around us. And one thing that was happening at that time was the Olympiads, like math Olympiads, physics Olympiads, informatics later on, Romanian history and so forth. And it was the way it was done. It was not like I see here, for instance, there's like, who wants to go? They would go. And then if their school organized, is fine. If not, not. It was like everybody was doing it. <laughs> so like the whole school was doing Math Olympiad. And when I was in sixth grade, I did that too. That's when it was started in sixth grade. And yeah. I still recall that because it was, I guess, a surprise for everyone, including myself, that I did so well. Going all the way to the nationals, and there were no expectations. Later years, I think my professors starting to have expectations from me, and maybe even myself because I did it once. Maybe I will do it a second time. Right, but that right. first year, I still remember now when I got the results, and I was like, "Oh, you got the first prize for your like for the state," and then going up to nationals for math. And that was the one thing I I really like math. I mean, even without those Olympiads, I like math, and I think I was doing well. And I was actually spending time with math because I, I enjoyed mm-hmm. other sciences too. But I think math was my, my favorite.
1: So when you went to the National Math Olympiad in Romania, did you actually have to go to the capital?
0: No, it was um, it was moving between places. So that was sort of my way of traveling, going outside where my grandparents lived or our family was like seeing a third city because I went to the math Olympiad. It was in different in different places.
1: How was the experience of being in the national math Olympiad? There,
0: there are a lot of people all interested in math. There was a lot of nervousness. I still remember that, like I was practicing problems, and we had this magazine, which I still like. I actually brought some copies for for my kids now. It's um, a magazine with math problems, but this like the um, the ones that really require reasoning and logic is not like the most mm-hmm. like straightforward from the textbook, the Olympian style yeah. ones. So I was yeah. doing a lot of those and it's primarily sitting with your team. And I don't know, stressing out about those three hours. It wasn't actually long. The actual competition was, was pretty short. So it was oh, yeah. either do it or not. I still remember like my teacher's advice to which I now give to my own students, like don't left any problem untouched, do something. So you show a little bit of your reasoning even if you have no idea where to start or where to go, don't leave them blank. Never go out, that, that was a rule from my instructor, never go out before three hours. With the idea I see now that you probably have to do something. Like don't feel like, oh, I'm done, I'm out. You have to sit there for all three hours and keep going at it. <laughs> and otherwise it was like seeing new places, which. I enjoy even now, like when I go to conferences, I go with the goal of, I don't know, presenting some work or meeting with people and then seeing the place, it's it's always a bonus, a nice bonus.
1: The school education, what language were the textbooks in and what language was the teaching in?
0: So it was all Romanian for me, but another thing that sort of marked my childhood, aside from what I mentioned, is also the presence of other languages. So in yeah. Cluj, for instance, and in the whole Transylvania, there is a minority Hungarian. And so there is education that's also happening in Hungarian. Like in the schools that I went to, there were maybe two or three classes at every level that were taught in Romanian. And there was one that was taught in in Hungarian. And so that was exposure that I had sort of throughout my childhood, hearing other languages around me, aside from also Italian, so my grandma's side and hearing like them sometimes talking to my mom or siblings in Italian um it was hungarian in that part of romania other parts would also have german majority was romanian but there were classes taught in other languages as well
1: did you have russian textbooks
0: no i was past that my mom and dad did <laughs> and my dad still has them in in his on his shelves at home um like some of the technical books he would read in Russian or some in German, and they learn Russian and German at school. Uh, We are past that. We are already doing, like we are learning foreign languages, which I always appreciate. I did English and French. Others did, I don't know, English and German or French and German, but always there were like a couple of foreign languages we learn, but no textbooks.
1: Now, among the, the children who went to the Olympiad, would you say there were more boys than girls? What was the gender division like?
0: I actually never paid attention. So yeah. it's, I think it's only in well, more recent years, I guess, after coming to US. Even prior, maybe I would notice in my college years, but I, I've never really paid attention. And I think now that you ask, I think the team the team that I were, I was on, there were more girls than boys. Um, Mm. in the math olympiads so that was not something that i ever paid attention i never considered there was any difference i mean of course i would see difference like in terms of games they like to play or how we'd separate during the recess uh, but not in terms of intellectual ability or any of like the diversity issues we see here so it was just Mm. going to the olympiads all together sometimes it happens there are more girls sometimes more boys but it was it wasn't really something that I paid attention to in the early years.
1: Were there any expectations from girls and women as they were growing up that, well, you know, science and math is not for you, or this is how your life is going to be, you know, maybe you get married, or, you know, there are some countries with those expectations. Were there any expectations like that? Or was it, as you described earlier, largely, you know, education is the way out, so we just go as far as we can there?
0: The way I perceive it, and again, I give a lot of credit to, to my parents and the way they they raise us, there they weren't. I can see in how maybe in the more rural areas there would be, for us, I, I never perceived any of that. On the contrary, if I would have had some beliefs, maybe they were the opposite that you see now, that girls were doing better and they are better in certain topics. So I had the opposite beliefs.
1: When was your the first computer that you used?
0: Oh, so that would move us like fast forward to, well, not that in, in high school were first computers, but they were the ones with punch cards and we had them. Um, I don't think anyone would have heard of them now. Prez and other there were some Russian computers.
1: And this was in high school? It was
0: in high school. So I did as a trajectory because I liked math and presumably I was good at it when we do Um, exams for going from middle school to high school. So middle school for us is up to eighth grade, like here. Um, And then you do an exam to go to a high school. And so the choice I made was to go for the high school that was best in math and my hometown. And that also happened to be the only high school that also had some computer science. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's how I started to be exposed to that. And so in, when I first started, so there was ninth grade, I did a lot of pen and paper. And I actually value a lot pen and paper computer science. I think it removes a lot of frustrations. You learn the concepts, fundamentals. I did a lot of those, like just drawing algorithms, um, doing, I don't know, binary conversion. So a lot of it was on paper, really. And if you would get to type your program in a computer, it was a big deal. So that was sort of the highlight of a semester or something. And then we did, we had this... Computers that will type, I still recall there were tapes that we record our program on a tape, which was after we advanced from the punch cards. (laughs) And primarily basic, that was in ninth grade. Um, Then we did some C in 10th grade, Uh, then Pascal 11, and then C again in the um, 12th grade, so in the senior year. Um, And uh, again, some on computers, but most of it really learning the the concepts and we are still feeling I, I remember stories from from high school on how so we are doing also assembly and some of this like really low level and i remember stories from my high school that there were students before us were learning the so-called um zero one language where you actually have to type everything <laughs> in zeros and ones wow. so i was thinking like wow now we made a lot of progress good i don't have to type all those zeros and ones <laughs>
1: That's really low level. Yes,
0: yes. The lowest it could be. Uh
1: Yeah. So, In your high school years, uh, this is after the revolution, did you see the economy and the way of life again improve after what it was before the revolution?
0: So there were changes. One thing which I know it's minor, but during communism, we had to wear uniforms (laughs) and that stopped after the revolution. So everybody would wear whatever, which is something that we sense. We started seeing more like people coming in. So having that exposure to some foreigners, like even hearing another language, like another language other than what we would hear, like Hungarian, German, English, say, spoken on streets or Italian. So which was a sign of more people coming in there wasn't like a huge change in terms of how much we would have like the um, on the table, for instance. Now, there was a lot more available in stores, but then the money in the family wasn't necessarily all of a sudden much more. So in terms of how much we could afford, it, it wasn't like a drastic change. But we started seeing change sort of immediately after. Still with... I mean, like I said, even now it shows that it's still developing, but um, at least in terms of immediate needs, like books, for instance, is one thing that I, I love books. And so being able to see them on the shelves in the bookstore or only in your <laughs> grandpa's shelves, it makes a difference. So buying yeah. Yeah. books that you actually are interested in, that was, a, that was a big difference. So we saw the signs of the like change right away, but there was, of course, a lot of still communism still trickling in uh, people who were very active during communism now all of a sudden turning tables and apparently being in charge with the change which a lot of people didn't like and I think for a good reason like
1: so the same people who ran the communist bureaucracy were also running.
0: right I mean they just say well I don't believe in that anymore now I'm in charge of this new place and People didn't like that. And so there was a lot of that still happening.
1: Did the food and power situation improve?
0: That did. So power, I don't remember having had those hours at the time of um, no power. Um, And food, it started, like we started having it in store. It was now primarily how much you could get with the money that you had. And then there were other changes. I know my mom was laid off at some point because of a lot of the um, changes that happened in the company where she was working, which was one of the communist factories. And it was going well. It was sort of the company in Romania to produce refrigeration, like whatever it was needed for refrigeration. But because of all those changes for a temporary, like for a period of time, she was laid off and then she started working again. And there were these changes that would impact you in other ways. With all the change now, there was no more guarantee that everybody would have a place to wear.
1: Was she able to visit her family in Italy? Were you able to travel as a family?
0: My mom and dad did travel in the 90s. So like 1990, yeah. right after yeah. um, they did right after. travel, just the two of them. And I recall my mom's stories. It was very special. It was the very first time she went outside. Even just seeing stores with light, because those were not the stores we had in Romania. And a lot of, I don't know, a lot of different cheeses, that's what she mentioned, like there was this showcase of lots of different cheeses. You'll never see that in Romania. So a lot of these little things that now we take for granted that made a huge impression on her. And then seeing her relatives, just seeing another place. It was the first time that she went out and she was already in her, like, um, in 99, she was already, yes, in her uh, 40s.
1: So returning to your timeline in the early 90s, you're finishing high school and then you're cutstring bachelor's. Uh, what made you choose computer science and engineering? And then I guess also what made you choose uh, the Technical University of Cluj-Napoca? It was a local university for you. Uh, I want to ask about your choices and I also want to ask about what you needed to do to get admitted to the universities.
0: So I feel that a lot of the things that I've done almost are like natural follow-ups. So it it never felt like, oh, I have to make this major choice. Like for instance, going to college I really like the computer science that we were doing in high school, Um, and we were doing a lot of it. I think we were sort of among the last to do two weeks of schooling, like regular schooling with math, physics, and so forth, and one week of it was called practice when we do only computer science. So I did a lot of computer science throughout high school, and I liked that, and I think I was doing reasonably well, and so I wasn't even considering anything else. I feel like if I spent so much time on all this computer science during high school and I I like it, why would I go elsewhere? So somehow it wasn't, I di- it didn't even feel like a decision. It was a decision because different people, like my colleagues went in different places. But for me, it was always, I want to continue doing computer science. There was a little bit of a choice in terms of Technical University of cluj napoca the one that I went to, that's also called the Polytechnic. So I emphasized it yeah. on a little bit more. Um, engineering aspects and then there is also Babesh Boyoi, which is a large university which would have more of the it was called informatics so more of the computer science yeah. side without the computer engineering I really don't recall exactly how I made that decision and I know it was five years versus four years it was more core engineering I think maybe also a little bit of the competition attracting me your question like how did you get in there was an exam so we had exams i mentioned the one when we finished eighth grade that was an exam when you finish 10th grade there was another exam to go to the 11 and then
1: are these exams are these like regionally administered or are they national level exams
0: they're organized by in a way you say so they are happening at national level and uh, that makes sure that every student will move on somewhere But they are run by by the schools. Like, for instance, my high school ran the exam to admit students into ninth grade. And then the same, it was my high school that ran the 10 toward 11 exam. Then it was the Polytechnic, the university, that ran the exam to get students admitted for those programs.
1: So each university had its own Entrance exam.
0: Yes, yes. Which also, I think there, there were some agreements. Actually, I don't even know the insights of that. There were some agreements in terms of, I would imagine the, sort of the peer institution in Bucharest would hold similar exams in math and physics. They were run by them, but I imagine there were some agreements as to what was tested. Um, the one thing that was known to be a difference was what was the grade that you would need to get in so you know that roughly with a 7 you get in or roughly with a 9 you get in or with a 5 or and then depending on how students would go in those that wouldn't would be moved to other other institutions or other majors that would admit with that that grade um or you'd end up staying sort of at home for a year and do the exam again to pass and go go somewhere
1: And it was just the exam, the the school grades, those didn't count for anything.
0: They didn't, which is somehow surprising. So it was sort of an exit exam. So we did have an exam to finish 12th grade. So to finish high school, there was an exam just to finish that. And then there was another exam to enter college. And the finishing grade did not count for entering college. Which now I know they, they do look at that at the time when I was doing it. It was just something like if you wouldn't pass the 12th grade, the baccalaureate, the way we call it, you just wouldn't have a high school diploma. So you have to pass that to have your high school diploma. And then starting mm-hmm. another, like starting the college degree was another exam to start that next yeah. step.
1: Was it common for students to go to a university in their own region, so in your case Transylvania, did did students go to universities in other regions?
0: Students did go to universities in other places and I had quite a few of my colleagues were from elsewhere. I just happened to be in a university (laughs) city and so I didn't even have to think about that because I had the choice of universities in my hometown. Uh, But I know I had peers who were coming from from other places that didn't have that. It was at that time that also we started seeing private universities, but it wasn't clear how good they were, um, and there were, of course you had to pay for them, whereas um, for the state universities like the one that I went to, if you got good grades, you could even get some kind of a scholarship, yeah. so be paid <laughs> to do it, in addition to not having to pay tuition or anything else. So. Those ended up being quite competitive, the state universities, because they were you get good education, and then there is no tuition to be paid.
1: So moving forward to your time at uh, the Technical University of Cluj Napoca, as you're doing your bachelor's in computer science and engineering, the the program there must have been quite different from the bachelor's programs we have here now in the U.S. in universities for computer science. Can you say a couple of things that were great in the program at Cluj Naboka, which US universities don't have, and a couple of things that you wish you had back then?
0: Well, one thing that I did like was having the same group of peers throughout my years. So there was this one year of um, students who were doing computer science. And I recall there was 80 of us split into different subgroups for the labs, but the 80 of us who started we were almost the 80 who finished. I mean, some may have dropped, maybe a few have joined, but it's not like the way we do it here, where we take you have to accumulate a certain number of credits and you pick and choose classes. So we ended up as a group of students who really knew each other and we were very like united in a way. Um and I actually like that. I like that you get a social network that's yeah. very yeah. tight as opposed to here i'm actually surprised even for younger years like in K12 where you don't spend year after year with the same group they just sort of mix and match after every year which is surprising to me so that's one that's one thing that i i really liked in terms of things that i see here i'm not sure that i would have wanted them that way like another difference was that primary grade was coming from exams And so I wasn't, now I can say it, but I wasn't the model student. I would never go to courses. I would never attend lectures. I would just get from colleagues who were attending, I would copy their notes and then study. And so my emphasis was really during exams. I would study really hard and get good grades. And that's because unlike here, there was nothing that would keep us engaged. So there were no assignments throughout the year you're not like midterm, there's not so a there's just one exam and that's that, that you get the grade. I, th- I think the student me wouldn't like me saying this, <laughs> That to have that to keep students engaged. I actually yes. like the way I've done it. Um, but thinking of other students, I think keeping students engaged throughout the year, it's more beneficial than putting so much emphasis in just, I don't know, two weeks of exams. One could do the way I've done it, where you never show up to anything just show up for exams and you get good grades. Uh, But there was very little engagement.
1: In your bachelor's program from 93 to 97 at Cluj-Nabuka, did you have a chance to get into research?
0: Not really. Um, One thing which is different from here is that maybe some university would do it that way, but we had to write a thesis at the end of our five years. So that was Mm -hmm. mandatory. And so that, for better or worse, forced us into it a little bit of research. I still recall the first paper that I read, uh, which I got from the professor that I was doing the thesis with. I was exploring methods and objects in um, in Java and how you could encode those like regard methods as objects, which I think it was an interesting thought. <laughs> I haven't really pursued that that thread. Um, so I did a little bit of research. I had to write a substantial thesis around what I've done. Um, I had to present it in front of a committee, and every single one—I wasn't special in that way. So every single student, in order to graduate, um, they they had to do that. Um, but I I didn't really do much beyond that. So and I'm not sure if I would have done it if it wasn't the requirement.
1: This is the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast interview with Radha Mihalcha, professor at the University of Michigan. So as you're nearing the end of your bachelor's, you're starting to think about next steps in your career. What options did you consider then?
0: So that was, I think it was an interesting point. I wasn't considering coming to the United States. So that's one thing. I didn't feel I was ready to work. Well, sometimes choices are made for us. (laughs) So like I said, I never considered United States. Um, And I also mentioned that I wasn't the model student going to school every day. Um, And so when I was in, so it was my senior year, my graduating year, the fifth year for me. um, And that's when email came in. So it was a big deal. Oh, we get email and every student was getting an email account. And when every student got an email account, I wasn't there because (laughs) I wasn't going to school. And so, I came some days after and said, "Oh, you know, can you please create also an email account for me?" um uh, I said, "Yeah, sure I, I will." So they created an email account for me, and the thing is because I came days after they linked it by mistake to the master year, so there were the mailing list, and so there was my account was linked to the master year, and so that's how I got an email that was sent um by a Professor in the United States talking about scholarships to do a PhD in United States which was sent to the master students but I wasn't a master student I just got it because of that mistake yeah. because of me not <laughs> going to school um and that's the first time ever that I saw well maybe this could be an option to go and do a PhD somewhere um and I I applied so it was between the time when I got that email by mistake and the time I was here in United States was just like a couple of months I just went for it, I applied. I didn't apply anywhere else. I didn't even know that application was the thing. I just had that email that was talking about doing a PhD at SMU in Dallas. Yeah. And I sent my yeah. application in. I didn't have a master, which was unusual, but they said, well, you have good grades, so why not? <laughs> so.
1: That's such a serendipitous sequence of events. You're not going to class and then the email coming And then you're going in to request an email, but then getting put in the wrong list. But then you get an email there that points you to the programs in the US.
0: It was. And now it's my daughter primarily who's pointing to that email because I met my husband here. He's from Romania too, but I met him here. Uh, He was also doing a PhD at SMU. So she's saying, well, if there wasn't that email, I wouldn't have... I wouldn't exist <laughs> because I wouldn't have met. So a lot, exactly, a lot of what followed can be connected there. I think this actually happens a lot to all of us, except that yeah. a lot of times we cannot put our finger on it. Like I, I know I can put my finger on it because of that mistake because I wasn't. So I, I know when it happened. A lot of times we don't know when it happens, but there are a lot of these choices that just fully change our trajectories, and we are not even aware
1: your batchmates in the bachelor's program were there a lot of women in your batch
0: so i think that was the first time since you asked me in, in high school and olympia i didn't notice then i think in, in the college years is the first time when i noticed it didn't bother me uh, but i noticed there was a disproportionate number of yeah. <laughs> male students compared to female it was about i think a quarter of us in some places here you see even less but yeah, there was, in the polytechnic, the The other university was doing computer science. It was more balanced. But the polytechnic, maybe because it was longer, it was more emphasis on engineering, sometimes mixed up with electrical engineering. So there was like about, say 25% of us. And then it happened and we were split into labs. And in the lab that I was part of, so there was a group of maybe 15, 20 students. I was the only woman. And that didn't bother me either. I went along very well with my colleagues. I always had my special place (laughs) because I was doing pretty well. I would never have to go to an exam early or like, I always had like, Rada this is your seat here, like really central, so everybody could connect to me if needed. Um, so I, I had a great time. I didn't really notice anything in terms of, I don't know, how professors would deal with me or, except for the uneven number, I didn't really notice yeah. anything.
1: The fellow women who were there in your bachelor's program, do you know if, They went on to have careers in tech. What happened to them afterwards, generally?
0: Several of them, yes. Um, I still keep in touch with some of them. So some went on to become research scientists, some even like within the same field. I still have friends who do computational Mm -hmm. linguistics even now and we see each other at conferences or otherwise keep in touch. Um, Some went on to become faculty, some stayed at the polytechnic there, the university, like here, some decided that well, computer science was not for them, so they switched to another discipline. So, but a lot of them actually don't recall. I recall of some of my early peers who decided to drop. I don't recall from um, from among the women students to drop, and they eventually con- continue with the sort of the usual changes you'd see, like. Oh, I'd, I could rather do geophysics or something else. And they switched to another discipline. So there are a couple like that.
1: So returning to your timeline, it's 1997. You moved to the U.S., uh, to, to Dallas, Texas, quite a different place from Napoca in Romania and you start your master's at uh, the Southern Methodist University. What were a couple of difficult things to adapt to after you moved to the U.S.?
0: Well, I think everything. Uh, so it was a big shock in many different ways. It was the first time that I'd been away from home. Now after 89, My family spent more time in Italy. So there were times, like, for instance, during college years, I I had extended periods of time that I was just living with my sister, who was also doing university, and my family was um, in Italy, including my brother. And so there were times that I was away from my parents, but really being away from home, it was the first time. And again, in retrospect, I'm somehow surprised. I don't know, I was 23, just Went on a bus and from there on a plane and yeah. off I went and then landed here in a place that I've never been, didn't really know much about. So it was a major change. One thing that I recall, it was the um, just the language itself, like I learned English in school, but learning in mm-hmm. school is different from using it day to day. It took a while to actually understand what people were talking. And so the face to face was the first round of understanding. TV was next, and then radio was the hardest. It took me a while, I think even more than a year, to understand what people were talking on, on radio because you didn't see faces. It was just like blah, 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 something. <laughs> I just couldn't help. Uh-huh. We have even now jokes with like Romanian friends on how they would ask you, you know, like paper or plastic when you go out of a store, but usually it's said so quickly and neither of us could understand anything. So our default was yes. So paper or plastic and you say, yes, (laughs) just to say something or it's for here to go. And then you say, yes, because you don't really understand what they say. So that was a big, that was really big shock. Um, I had to teach. So I was a GSI, a teaching assistant from the very beginning. So week one. Here on a different land, I found myself in front of a class saying something. I barely could understand them. I guess the same went for them <laughs> because I had, a, I had an accent. Super nervous. Eventually, it was it was fine. So um, now I have no problem to sit in front of thousands. But um, that was um, a major difference. And then again, not knowing people, lack of communication with family and friends. We didn't have any conference calling or anything. It was these cards yeah. that would pay five dollars and you get three minutes out of it.
1: Very expensive. Very
0: expensive and hard to connect really. So after three months I went back home. That was sort of how much I could last. <laughs> I went and spent wow. a Christmas home and a new year and then came back and kept going home. Well, even now I keep going home every yeah, year, yeah. sometimes twice. So during PhD, I went twice. Now, one thing that I forgot to mention, which I, I think it's maybe relevant, is that in yeah. uh, college, my AI class didn't go quite well. Uh, I think mm. it's the one class that I nearly failed. Um, so it was getting like the just passing grade. Yeah. I, I think it's relevant, again, in retrospect, the fact that I do AI now, um, and like even leader yeah. lab that says that some of those grades maybe are irrelevant, just sticking with what you like, regardless of, of that. Um, yeah. That's what it matters. Yeah. So maybe in a way it actually even pushed me more to do more. The same as in fifth grade, I got a poor grade in grammar, like things that have to do with language, which really affected me. And now I know a lot of the grammar by heart because of that poor grade.
1: Uh, That actually segues to my next question, which is, uh, so you're in um, in Dallas, Texas at SMU, and you really haven't done research before. When do you start to like this research thing?
0: Maybe I always like research things, but I didn't know it. I know I had inventions that I was making, even as a a child, you were not in computer science. I Mm. invented this thing to help my mom to put clothing. For to dry on on a wire, you know, how, like there was no wire, yeah. so you just put them there. Both sides, and
1: yes.
0: I had this thing, which was really just drawn. It never ended up being put in practice, but just an invention that I made to help my mom that way. Um, I had another one that would knock at the bathroom door, so something that you'd pull a string and it would knock. So I, I think <laughs> I had that. Interest in creating new things um, yeah. even as a child, although they were not necessarily they weren't called research and there wasn't they weren't important right. to science. So it was really here. It was even the first year when I came, and I always liked to look for things that were not necessarily the beaten path. I think I was at that time among the first to use web counts to do statistics for natural language is because I figure, well, I could actually break through the URL and do a little bit of reverse engineering and send that so I can get the counts. In a way, maybe it was fairly natural for me because I had the interest. Yeah. I actually have to control myself on the other end of the spectrum too. Like, I'm so excited by new things. Sticking with one thing and keep going at it, I think that's for me yeah. the harder part because I'm getting, yeah. I like research. I like the novelty of it
1: just naturally. Yeah. The area of natural language processing, did, did you take to it like fish to water or was it again, a random choice or outside your control?
0: I think that was a fish to water in a way. I yeah. like languages. So that, that was, yeah. it also happened that this, like the scholarship that I got was in a place that had natural language processing. So I think that was a happy coincidence. But I always like languages. So that to me was very natural for my path. So it was the one thing that put together my interest in language and interest in math and then later computer science. So I don't know if you would, I, if I would have started elsewhere, I like to believe that probably I would have still ended up here because that, that was something that I was very interested from early on.
1: As you're nearing the end of your PhD and in uh, in SMU, and you finish your PhD in two thousand one, so this is like early two thousands. You're considering your career options. Did you consider going back to Romania as an option at all?
0: Yes and no. So, like I said, I keep going back to Romania, um, and I do want to contribute to science and engineering in Romania, or generally like yeah. contribute to lifting Romania up and people there and the considerations that I made were if I were to go back, which would definitely have the bonus of being closer to family, I don't think I would have the power that I have from here to contribute back. Um, I actually very much admire people who do research in Romania, and I tell them all the time. I think they are actually the one who really make a difference by doing it without having the resources. Like here in the US, we do have a lot of resources. Um, So there is a lot that would support us if you want to do something that you can actually do it. There is much harder. You don't have just these funds to go to conferences to buy computers. Um, So it's much harder. So those who actually do it, I really admire them. On the other side, if I had the choice, like going there and struggling to do the research, then I couldn't really give back. And so I figure I would stay here for a while and one thing that I'm really fond of is this award that I started some years ago, inspired by the one that I got myself, the PK's Presidential Award. Um, I realized that there is no such thing in Romania, so I started one myself working with um, the city of Cluj. And so that's something that we do every year. It's now eight years where we give research awards to young, like young researchers in science and engineering from across the field is not only computer science. Um no. and so that's one way of of giving back, of encouraging research. And I got I mean I heard from many people that they appreciate that because it's hard and having that word of appreciation, what you are doing, is a good thing. It helps. Here is something in recognition of all the hard work you do. They they appreciate yeah. that. And think maybe I couldn't have done that if if I were.
1: And it's it's also good that the government or at least regional government in Transylvania is is willing to put in some money into, into these awards.
0: So those money are raised from companies and fortunately I, I don't I have to do that myself because of this collaboration that mm-hmm. I, I have with the mayor of Cluj-Napoca. So they take care of the sponsorship part and raising funds. I do I the see. organization and having a scientific committee who evaluates all the applications so it's, it's been a great partnership. So there is some financial, yeah. um, uh, reward, which I think is very important. It's not just a paper. It's actually with some weight, yeah. but I don't have to do that fundraising because they take care of that. Yeah. And then the other thing which I noticed, which speaking of diversity, a lot of the um, applicants and correspondingly also a lot of the winners for these awards are women. I think there is more women in research than um, doing research in Romania than maybe in other places. But they're it's also about me being there I may mean, not me, me, <laughs> me as a woman. So when you see someone up there, you're more encouraged, like for instance, to apply. So maybe more women apply because it's me up there organizing this award than if it were someone else. I think that really matters. Um, like being in more like leadership positions encourages others to
1: would you say the the research environment in Romanian universities has significantly improved now compared to what it was you know when when you were in college there in university there
0: uh, I think it did change um for one thing you ask about the language of my studies now I know that yeah. some classes at least are conducted in English for instance so you have more exposure to the language that Well, a lot of the research happens in English. Um, a lot of the papers are in English. I know there are more students who would do research. I hear more and more and I get contacted by students who do PhDs in natural language processing. So there are entire programs that have grown. Um, so there is definitely more, um, than it was when I was, when I was a student.
1: You're listening to the interview with Radha Halcha, professor at the University of Michigan. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast. So I want to ask about your second PhD, which you got in 2010 in the area of linguistics from Oxford University. And you got this while you were a faculty member. What made you even think of a second PhD and then uh, the choice of linguistics, what led up to it?
0: Well, so there were a couple of factors one is that i needed i I felt i needed a challenge i mean it was all fine and it's not to say that being a faculty member is not challenging enough but i felt (laughs) i needed like more of an intellectual challenge i wouldn't say like i felt like plateauing but it was like i was going through this rhythm of writing papers and going to conferences i needed something that would challenge me more um so that was one and then the other like i said i always had this passion for for languages so it seemed like a interesting experience to try and sort of, why not? It was before children, so that wasn't there. I mean, I had more of dynamicity in how organizing, things, how it go. And so eventually when I defended in Oxford, I already had my daughter. So I'm, I don't mean to say that they were, they would stop me from anything, but I had more flexibility in terms of spending more time right. in Oxford versus here. And so. That was what motivated me. It was also the professor, Steve Pullman, whom I met at the conference and I really admired him. I continue to admire him for, for his work and his approach to mentorship. So that was also motivation. I mean, he was teaching there. He was in linguistics. Later he switched to computer science, but he was in, in the linguistics department. And again later, when he moved, he said, Well, would you like to move to computer science? Well say I already did computer science once <laughs> so I, I'd rather stick with linguistics and it wasn't it was a great learning experience. I took classes in neurolinguistics. You don't have to take classes, but I just mm-hmm. set in classes out of curiosity. I think the whole thing was an interesting experience. The way that graduation is conducted or exams, that is yeah. things just yeah. different.
1: How, how did you manage that time? I mean, you, you still had to do your a lot of your responsibilities as a faculty member, teaching research. And then were you physically in Oxford during this time as well?
0: I was for times, for weeks at a time. Oxford has the yeah. has the shortest terms, so they are just ten weeks, and some of those would be in summer, so there was no problem there when it was summer um otherwise, I would take some time to go there and then come back here. Our was joking was my England commute, which was <laughs> it was with an airplane, not like a bus commute or anything, but it was yeah. at some point it was it felt a little bit like a commute and then there were times when I could also do things remotely. It it worked just fine. I didn't feel difficulties or anything.
1: And would you say in retrospect that second PhD affected and changed your research in significant ways?
0: I think it opened my eyes in new directions. Like I mentioned, that neuro-linguistic class that I, I sat on, I didn't really get the exams, but I sat on. Which opened my eyes in new directions. Uh, some of the research I've been exposed to there, like my peers there were all like linguistic students. So I, I do think it changed the way I do certain things. It was definitely closely connected. So it wasn't like I would do a PhD in biology or so. It was still language, which is very cl- connected to what I do. Um, but it did, it did change some perspectives that I had alongside with just seeing how research or teaching or this coursework happens in a different setting like i've seen my own in when i was in college for instance and i saw it here in u.s and that was yet another another way of doing school Are,
1: are there one or two practices from oxford that you feel might be useful for u.s university to universities to adopt
0: well, I don't I think it's to some extent specific to Oxford, which is the the colleges, which has a different meaning than college here. Um so you belong to a college, like I was part of the Somerville College, and usually students would have lunch together. So it's encouraging these communities that are not necessarily shaped by the discipline you study. They cut across. And I I think that's actually a good thing. It's forming closer connections among students, encourages friendships, which again is not I have to be, not that you have to, but the only students that you are exposed to are those who take the right. same computer science classes. Right. And that I like. And there were like a lot of social things, including having lunch every day, for instance, that you get to meet with these students who were studying all sorts of other things and at different levels. It could be freshmen here or PhD student there. And that's one thing that If we would have the way to implement them at scale, I I really think it's helpful.
1: I have a couple of questions in the retrospective and perspective uh, segment. Uh, You've talked about some of your role models and mentors. Uh, are there others, uh, other role models and mentors who affected your life that you want to mention and talk about?
0: There's also the professor who was teaching. He was teaching Romanian, so he's really teaching language in middle school. Um, I mentioned mm-hmm. him briefly. Uh, he almost failed me in fifth grade. I got a <laughs> terrible yeah. grade. And, right. But he was just a phenomenal professor. I learned so much. A lot of it was really learning about Romanian grammar, which I might be, now it's not that useful in what I do. But he's really having that deep interest and focus on language and language phenomena. I credit him a lot for that. And he was sort of one of my favorite professors throughout K-12. I think my math professors also were role models. Some of them with a little bit of that craziness that you would attribute to professors, um, but then always being supportive and trying to encourage me in what I, I like. And then I mentioned my parents several times. So they are my role models in how they, just how they conducted life and how they managed to sort of always see the bright side. I think that's really something that I, I learned from them to always turn things around and see the, the bright side regardless of how dark things are around
1: you. That segues to my next question, which is about um, failures and rejections. So as academics and as researchers, that's something that we face very regularly, failures and rejections, whether it's papers, proposals, ideas, whatever. What is your philosophy to handling failures and rejections?
0: So one which I actually quoted to my colleagues just a few days ago, (laughs) and I keep quoting to my children and students. There is. One quote, which I feel I've been living by, um, it's uh, T.J. Watson's, I said, do you want a recipe for success? It's quite simple, really, double your rate of failure. And I've been aiming without knowing, I mean, before I run into this quote, which I realized it it matches me so perfectly, I think I've been not shying away from failure, not that it doesn't stink, (laughs) I do, I mean, I, I do feel it when I get something rejected, even now. I think now it usually takes me a day. I think earlier days maybe took me longer to sort of recover after rejection. But in a way, I think it's also encouraging me to go back at it because I don't like to not be able to do something. And I had that all the time. I mentioned this class in in language early on when I almost failed. And I think that really encouraged me to go more. I did the AI class in college that, again, I almost failed and that didn't really make a difference. I know career proposals, for instance, are something that are a big deal for us in academia. And I failed the first one, I failed the second one, but I just kept getting at it. Eventually the third one also turned into a PKs. So in a way I, I really, without again without knowing it I, I think i've been living by that quote yeah. of doubling my rate of failure
1: <laughs> um, yeah that's a beautiful quote um,
0: and i also think to to the extent that we do our best we cannot really we can't really do more right so as well, if we do our best that means that we do our best so we cannot do more sort of out the rest is outside us we don't really we cannot control it, right? So I cannot control those reviewers. I cannot control those panelists. Right. I can't really even control my professor who's deciding to fail me or not. So as long as I do my best, that's all I can do. And then I think for the rest, it's outside me and I shouldn't... I know, again, it stinks, but then... It...
1: As some of your experiences have shown, sometimes things you don't don't control and cannot control do change your life for for the better, into better paths, into interesting paths.
0: Right, right. And again, I mean, looking back, it's easier always, but right. in, just going for those things, you can always, you cannot always plan ahead. Sometimes even just almost right. sort of going with the flow, experiencing this new adventure and see where it brings it. right. all right.
1: Sort of related to that, I want to ask about imposter syndrome. This is something that a lot of researchers suffer from either acutely or chronically is that, something that you experience uh how do you advise people to deal with imposter syndrome
0: well i think i have experienced it um well i do (laughs) i think but then i i first of all i i remind me that it exists and i think that helps just spelling it out i read recently somewhere i wonder if it was adam grant or uh, someone else who said that imposter syndrome is is very interesting as a psychological phenomenon because you think everyone is good and you are not and you know the others think good of you but you do not and you somehow at that point you choose to trust yourself that you are not good rather than trusting the others who think you are good. (laughs) So it's interesting (laughs) as a phenomenon itself. So just reminding me that, that that exists and in a way I also think I have the benefit of not necessarily being an extrovert, which helps. I don't rely so much on the opinions of others, not in a bad way, but just I sort of I have the things that I value in my own world. I don't need others to tell me what's good and what's not.
1: Yeah. External affirmation.
0: Yeah. I mean, in a way I can say I'm fortunate to be more of an introvert that help. Um, That's nature. I wouldn't put it so much on things that I've done, but It's even things that you would consider are detrimental. Like, I I don't think introvert, like being an introvert is not necessarily considered to be something that helps you. I do think actually is very helpful. So, even things that are stereotypically considered one way, just looking at how they benefit you or not, benefit you, just creating your own world. And then I also have little tricks. I had. I remember very vividly there was one winter, some years back, but not that long back when I, for a reason or another, I had the confidence deep, which just like, I was already like a professor and I wasn't supposed to have that. But whatever I was saying, I felt like people were looking at me negatively, which was like an <laughs> exacerbating imposter syndrome. And my reaction to it, I went on Amazon and got myself some high heel boots and i don't know red nails like things that would boost my confidence in a way artificially but whatever i knew that would help with that like why not so that got got me out of that confidence
1: Uh, my last question is a kind of hypothetical question um imagining if you had not grown up in romania but instead you had been born in the us same family everything else being the same your parents being the same and you had gone through the U.S. educational system, do you think your life and career may have been different? And this is a hypothetical question.
0: Well, it's a good question, hard question. (laughs) I think they probably would have been different. Um, In terms of interest in math and languages, maybe not. In terms of values, I think would have been different. Uh, Like what I value and what matters to me, I'm pretty sure that would have been very different. Um, so I grew up under a lot of hardship. And again, I don't say it for others to pity me because I don't pity myself, it's just a fact. Um, and I always saw the positives of it. Um, like I don't watch TV now because we didn't have any TV then. So I just grew up not having the habit of <laughs> sitting hours at a time in front of a TV, Um, I don't necessarily value these material things. I don't care too much about them. And I think it's because of those times. So as a value system, I think I would have been different. Passion-wise, not. The other thing that I wonder is to what extent sort of these gender gaps that we see here, to what extent they would have affected me. Um, They didn't as I was growing up. But here, I don't know. Sometimes they are a little bit more... Obvious that they were during my time in college. So, that part, I don't know. I mean, I could see myself sometimes feeling that maybe that's not the place for me. I wouldn't give up because I don't like giving up. So, I'm sure I would get back at it. (laughs) Uh, But just in terms of experience, those feelings more often than I use in college, maybe that would be
1: a difference. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you want to talk about?
0: I didn't mention that, but it was. My mom who got Mm -hmm. me my first laptop when I was in the first year and that made a big, big difference. I still have it. It's an Olivetti with those discs that you put in, Uh, but that support system can make a, can make a big difference. And so finding that and leveraging that and then just going for it. Um, And then the other thing, which is more of these days that I think of, I think trying to think of the other people who look at you. Um, to me, that also, I mean, it motivates me now every day, like knowing that there are others who care about me being here, not necessarily me as an individual, but say, seeing a woman doing certain things. I see that in these young researchers that are organized in Romania, that that matters. And so that also keeps me motivated, because I know I'm There are others who are then motivated by my own example. So keeping that.
1: Who look at you as a role model.
0: Yes, it sounds big and I don't, I think it sounds a little bit presumptuous to say I'm a role model, but just keeping at it so others would see you there, it can make a difference. And I now share that with my own students and tell them, well, even if at times you feel frustrated or feel like giving up, just thinking of who else would be impacted by either you giving up or you... Right. Sticking with it, um, that right. can also make right. a difference.
1: That's such a beautiful perspective. Uh, thank you, Rada, for coming on the podcast and for sharing your journey, experiences, and thoughts with us. Uh, probably the only word I know in the remaining language, uh, multsumes. Thank you. My <laughs>
0: Good pleasure. Good pleasure. My pleasure. Really.
1: This was episode thirty-three of the Immigrant Computer Scientist Podcast. You have heard the immigration story of Rada Mihalcha, professor at the University of Michigan and Immigrant from Romania in the 1990s. This was the third episode in our three-episode segment on immigrants from Romania. You may also enjoy the lead episode of this Romanian-American immigrant segment of our show. That's episode 31. and That features two prominent computer scientists originally from Romania and who have been in the U.S. since the 1990s. You may also enjoy episode 32, which is an interview with Jan Stoika. That's episode right before this one. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes, new ones, where the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast continues to visit other countries around the world as we talk to distinguished and prominent computer scientists who immigrated to the U.S. As usual, you can find all episodes and detailed episode guides on our website, csimmigrant.org. Again, that's csimmigrant.org. And you can find us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and basically wherever you get your podcasts. All the music used in episodes of the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast is royalty-free. All voice recordings were performed with and are reproduced with full consent of narrators and participants. You can find music credits on our website. Join the online discussion about this podcast on all major social media, including Twitter and Facebook, with the handle CSimmigrant and hashtag CSimmigrant. And of course, the episode guide is available at our website csimmigrant.org. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists Podcast.